Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who, on the surface, appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Carrie Perot has done many interesting things, uh, things that seem quite adventurous to me. She moved to Australia for about a year for work. Ten years later, she did her Kansas City job entirely over the internet while on a nostalgic vacation in Australia. She left a stable job to lead an organization that was basically dead, and she turned it into an epic group with 700 members and multiple activities per month. I wanted to interview Carrie because I never could predict what she was going to do next. She'd create events that just seemed to turn out perfectly. One day, there wasn't a sports league, and then all of a sudden, there was a league that offered six sports a year where 300 people would participate. And then I'd find out she was camping in the woods a day on foot from her phone and car. Now she's a stay-at-home mom with five kids, and I think she's always plotting her next move. Hey, Carrie. Hello. Well, let's get into your secret origin story. What kind of a kid were you? Oh, man. Uh, Well, according to my mother, I was just like my four-year-old son, Fulton. And I can tell you that he is... um, crazy town all the time. Um, basically I was really adventurous, always getting into trouble. Um, I had a hard time following directions. I always wanted to do my own thing. I was very, very strong willed. And so I would say, I mean, I just basically, I probably gave my mom a lot of gray hairs. And you had a sister. In contrast, what was your sister like? She was the model child. She was the the firstborn. I was secondborn. I was three and a half years younger than her. And I would say she was the kind of kid who you only had to ask her one time to do something and she would do it. And if you just looked at her the wrong way, I mean, if you looked at her sternly, then she would, you know, bust out crying. (laughs) So... (laughs) So in no way, shape, or form did your sister do an adequate job of preparing your parents no, for you? not so much. Okay, so, you know, one of your favorite words is shenanigans. Uh, let's uh, roll into high school. Uh, just tell me a little bit about high school and maybe some shenanigans. Okay. Well, um, I was really blessed in high school to have, I had a great group of friends, um, and we got involved in a youth group called K-Life, um, which was in, in uh, collaboration with Canicut Camps. I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of that. It's a Christian sports camp in the Ozarks. Um, but the great thing about K-Life was that it was they actually had a house um, where the, the guy leaders lived, the guys that were full-time staff members, and next door there was a girl's house where the girls' leaders lived. And it was that was the block. Okay, so this was in Prairie Village. Um, so we used to spend a lot of our time there on the weekends, um, and this was back when they would just literally leave the doors open and you would just come in and hang out in the living room, um, and, and there'd be kids from all these other schools, and so we had good friends from these different schools, but I think the most fun thing about high school was just that, um, we always had creative ideas about what we were going to do that, you know, I mean, we did things that were outside the realm of what other kids were doing. Um, so maybe one example would be, so I never drank in high school, never did drugs, never did any of that kind of stuff, never had any interest to do that kind of stuff. Um, but we definitely wanted to have a good time. 
And so I remember one particular evening, um, my four best friends were spending the night at my house and we decided to spend the night in the backyard so that we could sneak out. Um, so we left a note for my mom and dad on the kitchen table in case my mom woke up because we didn't want her to freak out um, and think we got kidnapped or something. But we took my Chrysler minivan, navy blue with a wood siding, and we went and uh, we had a bunch of guy friends that, that went to Rutgers High School and we went and teepeed all of their houses and forked their yards. We were probably gone for like five hours and we just had a total blast. But it was totally clean fun and I think I ended up telling my parents like at the end of the weekend, hey, I just wanted to let you know what we did. <laughs> um, so that's one example. And then just other things that we would do were, um, you know, we, we would just like, they had a costume closet at the Kate Life house. And so we would all go and pick out the craziest outfit that we could think of. And then we would just like go to the, to dinner in the plaza or, you know, somewhere just, and try to act completely normal so that people would be looking at us and wondering like, are they for real? Are they kidding? So, you know, just doing those kinds of things um, on a regular basis kind of kept life exciting. And so for people who don't know, the Plaza is a pretty fancy, upscale, shopping, dining experience in the center of Kansas City. It's pretty old and it's just pretty upscale. So you would go dressed like what? Uh, give me an outfit. Oh, man. I don't even remember. I mean... I don't even know. I can't even I can't even <laughs> tell you. I mean, it wouldn't even necessarily be a coherent theme necessarily, just weird off-the-wall stuff. And we definitely weren't going to the upscale restaurants, I can tell you that, because we didn't have, you know, a ton of money to be spending. But they had McDonald's on the plaza. They had That's you know, right. some other things like that. That's so, right. Something yeah. for everybody on yes. the plaza. Yes. Okay. Uh, so what type of a student were you in high school while you were pulling these 4 a.m. shenanigans? Um, I would say this was true of high school and college, and I am really grateful to my parents for not putting too much pressure on me um, in, in regard of getting straight A's. I was not a straight A student. Um, I would say I had a balanced approach. I didn't do a ton of studying. Um, the things that I found interesting, I, you know, in class I was very, always had very active participation I tended to wait till the last minute to write papers or finish reading that novel that I was supposed to read. So I might have at times, you know, utilized cliff notes, unfortunately. <laughs> if I could go back, I think I would try to do it differently. You know, I think I see education differently than I did back then. But I also don't have regrets as far as my GPA or any of those things because I had a blast. I had a great social life. I played sports. Um, I did debate one year. That was really fascinating experience um just a lot and just being involved in my youth groups uh, you know I had a couple different groups that I was involved in and I that took up a lot of time and so um yeah I would say that would be the synopsis you're kind of a gigantically social person uh, I guess just a, a few quick bullet points what sports did you play uh, in high school I played volleyball my freshman year and then I played basketball um, freshman through junior year, and I chose not to play my senior year, which I kind of regretted later, but um, I just, uh, I think I saw the writing on the wall that uh, there were a whole lot of seniors, and they were good, that were really good, and I kind of was getting passed up, and I also, you know, found the coach to be a little bit challenging to work with, so um, I think looking back, I probably should have pushed through and played, but 
Hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm, say la vie. As I, they say. Yeah, I always view regrets in a way as positive because uh, some people say you shouldn't regret anything, but I think regrets kind of tell you what you should be doing next with your life. That's just kind of my opinion on regrets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But you also did so many other things. You were involved in different social groups, and it just seems like you just stayed busy all the time, essentially. I was pretty pretty darn busy. Okay, now, sure. something I'm very curious about is you said, like, you never touched alcohol, never touched drugs. Why? Why is that? That's a major pitfall, I think, for a lot of high school yeah. students, at least where I grew mm-hmm. up. It just seemed to mm-hmm. me that that was something that roughly 85% of the population engaged in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would really attribute that to a couple of things. First and foremost, you know, the camp that I grew up going to, um, it was actually an evangelical camp, so it wasn't Catholic. Um, but it was very formative in my life and it was kind of expensive. Uh, my family, we didn't take, we didn't take expensive vacations, but every summer my mom and dad would plunk down the money to send me to Kanakuk for two weeks or for a month. And to this day, I think they would say that it's the best investment they ever made. I mean, it was so formative to me. It was amazing to see these college kids that were totally on fire for their faith and they were really cool and really fun. And so I think I just decided at a young age that that's what I wanted to be like when I grew up. And so I kind of started trying to emulate that as time went on. And then I also think it really helped that just getting plugged into K-Life and then having a group of friends where it was collectively true that none of us thought that drinking was cool. It just seemed lame and... um, overdone maybe just I don't know I think we just kind of saw through that we felt like we knew that it wasn't as glamorous as people let on I feel like drinking is uh the least rebellious way to rebel yeah that this is just something people do it's illegal like I said where I grew up it was something that 85 percent of the minors seemed like they did uh people just always kind of felt a little sly like they're breaking the rules but if 85% of the people are all breaking the rules together, then I, I don't know. It just seems about as radical as driving five miles an hour above the speed limit. Right. I'm breaking the law now. Right. I mean, look at me. I'm just a big that's, rebel. That's a very good point. Yes. Well, and uh, I, I've got this theory of what I guess I call skill set fun. And I feel like you picked up skill set fun at camp because I, I don't even know all the things that you did. I mean, you I'm sure you maybe did some rock climbing walls. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and so maybe you could just... It just seemed to me like you could do 15, 20 things that I, I wasn't necessarily exposed to as a kid. Could you just rattle off a few of those yes. type of things? Okay, so we did rock climbing, rappelling. We did something called treetops. It was probably up in the air about 30 or 40 feet. And it was this entire challenge course where you are connected to a wire. But if you're afraid of heights, then it's definitely you know, a challenge because there's a lot of stuff you have to do where if you fall, you're going to fall a few feet, but it's still very scary being up there. Um, and you typically have a partner that you do it with. Um, and so that definitely built a lot of character in me. I would do it. I would push myself to do it every year, even though I'm afraid of heights. They had something called faith pole where you would climb up a pole, a basically, a um, what do you call it? A, just a telephone pole. Okay. And, um, you could do one. I think that the highest one you could do was like 45 or 50 feet. And by the time you got to the top, you getting up on that very narrow 
top part was very challenging because you had to do it one foot at a time. And so you'd put one foot up and then you had to steady your hand on your knee and push up to get the rest of your body up. And once you were standing on the top, you were swaying <laughs> back and forth in the wind. And then you have to jump for a trapeze. I'm sure you've seen these type of things before. Um, and of course you have, you know, you're connected to a wire, but you have to, to jump into, into the air. And, <laughs> and if you don't catch that trapeze, then you're going to fall several feet. And that feeling of just your stomach going up into your chest for me has always been something that makes me, you know, want to hyperventilate. That's why, you know, roller coasters are, are usually, I can handle the loops. No problem. It's that first drop. It's like when you're going up and it's that ch 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 part, you know, where you're just waiting for that first drop where I'm just always like, why, why am I doing this? So, I mean, those type of things. We also did spelunking. Um, we went, uh, so exploring caves and we went to a place in Arkansas where we went this through this, um, cave that had a section called the birth canal huh. and <laughs> they called funny. it this because it was the length of two, I think it was two football fields but it was so narrow that you could, for most of it, you couldn't stand up. You had to literally crawl on your belly. And at times you had to turn your head to the side or do certain things to kind of wedge your way through. Oh. Um, and there were people, there was somebody in front of you. So there's feet right in front of you and there's somebody behind you. So if you freak out and get claustrophobic, there's no, there's no exit. There's no getting out. You have to keep going. And it takes about an hour to get through this thing. Um, and I, you know, I, this one year, I, I think I had chickened out a couple different years and I finally decided, okay, I have to, you know, face this potential fear of claustrophobia. Cause I'd never really been in a position like that where I would know if I was going to freak out. Okay. But I figured if I do, you know, we're just going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to deal with it and keep going. And it's pretty cool. You take a before picture and you're totally clean. And then when you come out the other side, I mean, you were just like covered in mud. You see bats along the way and stalactites and stalagmites and what do they call it guano or whatever bat poop i mean yeah that's just, that's it guano. yeah I mean, you see all this stuff you know and it's just this incredible experience um and then also they have this thing called the blob which is like a gigantic pillow filled with air but by pillow i mean like for a giant um for yeah, for a giant. So mm -hmm. it's filled what? with air and it's multicolored and you jump off of a tower, land on it, and you bounce. And that's really fun. And then you crawl towards the end and then somebody else jumps and then you go flying off and you can do flips or other things. And um, yeah, so it was just a blast. And then, of course, they have skiing and canoeing and um, kayaking and all different kinds and of so things. And so you did all these things. Yes. Okay, see, that's what I mean by skill set, fun. That some of this stuff's kind of hard to do because a person could just latch on to just say one of these and just say skiing. And they could say, I'm not interested in skiing. You know, and then, I don't know, maybe they just go drinking with their friends at that point. Mm -hmm. um, were there any of these where you just thought, I really don't want to do this, but everybody else is doing this, so I think I'll give this a try? Um, I... I'll, there's one one that I never really latched onto, and that was actually the kayaking. Um, so I, I make my sound, myself sound like I have a lot of fears. I don't think I really have a lot of fears. But, um, typically speaking, I feel like once I became a mother, my you know anxiety level definitely amplified much higher than it ever was before. I don't 
consider myself a very anxious person in general. But I, I do remember that um, we were learning the wet exits where, you know, you have to flip it over on purpose and you've got the skirt that's around it keeping you in and you had to hit your canoe on both sides three times. So one, two, three. And then you had to rub your hands up and down the canoe and then you had to like go to the front and push yourself out. And I just... When I would do that, I would just like freak out as soon as I got into the water. I'd start doing that one, two, three, and then I would just panic and I'd start like flailing my arms. And I never quite got over that. So that was a little disappointing. But, but you tried. It is what it is. I mean, yeah. you, just, you, you pushed yourself into it. I kind of want to go back to the birth canal thing. And so I think it's because I went caving once and just only once in my life. And I was 17 or so. And it was fine. Uh, I think we were in this cave for like at least about an hour. And then we're somewhere deep underneath the earth and we reach this little pocket and they say, okay, coming up in this tunnel, there's going to be a little nook. And the only way that you can keep going is once you're in there, you basically have to do a 180 with your body in the fetal position and then you can shoot off in this other tunnel. Mm -hmm. Or we're in this big room right now. You can say, I've had enough and just go back. And I was 17. I just remember thinking, I've had enough. I think I'll Mm -hmm. go back. Because the whole idea of like crunching myself into a fetal position, spinning around in 180, of course, it's pitch black, uh, you know, unless you have your lights, et cetera. But every now and then somebody would shut off all the lights just so you could see what that was like. Right. Um, I don't know. I just uh, it it was quite the vivid, crazy experience. And so I I guess you've you sort of dreaded the birth canal, but then you finally did it. Mm -hmm. What was that like when you actually finally did it? Oh, it was amazing. I was so excited when I came out alive on the other side. You know, it was was just great. How about in the middle, though? Oh, so I have a memory. So I was was a sophomore in high school when I did it. And um, I can vividly remember in the middle that I, at one point, noticed that there were leaves and branches And I remember thinking to myself, if there's leaves and tree branches, that means that something had to bring that here. And that, I assume, would have been water. And so I kind of started panicking, thinking, well, what if, you know, it just starts pouring outside and water pours in and we all drown? You know, you kind of let your mind go. And um, it was pretty cool because, you know, we're with this group of people. And if you started to freak out, the person in front of you and or the person behind you would start talking you through it and encouraging you or um, we would pray you know it was a Christian camp so we would start singing worship songs if somebody was freaking out and we kind of all just got each other through it so some people did freak out oh yeah oh yeah and they got calm Eventually. And everybody yeah. made it out alive. Yeah, everybody made it out alive. When I was a kid or a teenager, there was a saying, they'll get over it. Yep. You could do <laughs> almost, true. You could do almost anything to anybody, and just the saying was, they'll get over it. Absolutely. So, well, congrats <laughs> on all that. Something I'd like to explore later is, do you just think you were born uh, maybe low anxiety, wanting to try exciting things, or... Do you think people get trained to be this way? Mm, I guess you could try to answer it now. Nature. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say that the majority of it probably I would attribute to nature, to just the way that I was born. Um, But I also 
think I would attribute it to my parents um, just being pretty laid back about a lot of stuff. I feel like they did a really great job of keeping, <clears throat> you know, keeping life, um, keeping everything in perspective and realizing that, you know, just, I don't know, they just didn't freak out about a lot of stuff. And so that allowed me the freedom to be adventurous, to try new things, to spread my wings. And I mean, certainly, you know, my mom would, would have been a lot more nervous and my dad in general I think a lot of times that's stereotypically the way that it that's is that's stereotypically the way that it um, is it's, and there's outliers to that but um, I would say that's true between my husband and I with the kids I'm typically the one that's more anxious when they're doing certain things but I hope that I'm going to carry that over with my kids as far as just you know if they want to have blue hair for a year I'm going to let them have blue hair because in the great scheme of things it really doesn't matter. Well, they'll have blue hair when they're 90 at any rate that's anyway. Right. <laughs> so there's always that. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's pretty good. One time I remember a story while I was there where uh, you moved into a new place and it was two stories tall. And uh, the design was the bricks just sort of jut out from the side of the building. And you looked at it as a, I guess, a rock wall climbing platform. And so you started climbing and then pretty soon you were way up on the second floor, second story window. And I was chatting with your mom and her back was to you. And then for whatever reason, she turned around and she saw you, mm -hmm. I don't know, 15, 20 feet above the ground. And she just had a mild heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> and then she got over it. And then she just mid-sentence, she just came back to me and just continued running right where she left off. Uh -huh. And I thought, wow, do you ever have her trained? That's funny. I don't remember that, but that sounds like something that Sounds like happen. something you yeah. would do. Okay, so you make it through college. What happens after college? <clears throat> well, right after college, I um, moved to Australia for a year to work for Net Ministries Catholic Organization. And um, I was on a team. There were 40 of us in total. And then we were broken up into five different teams. And my team was the West Coast Traveling Team. And so we started in Brisbane, which is essentially the equivalent of being in uh, Boston. And then we eventually, over the course of ten and a half months, I think it was, um, first we had five weeks of training, but then we traveled all the way in a 14-passenger in a van all the way over to the equivalent of uh, L.A., you cross you cross the whole back. continent in a fourteen passenger van. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, why Australia? I just think that's so cool because I don't know when I was twenty three or so. I mean, <clears throat> I heard about a few options like, oh, I could move to Alaska and I could work on a fishing boat, like deadliest catch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I honestly wish that I would have done it. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other things that just occurred around that age bracket for me, and just for whatever reason, I just felt like I needed to stay in the Midwest, and. Now I'm just kind of wondering, why did I do that? And it just seemed to me you were willing to cross the world. Why Australia? Mm -hmm. um, and why are you willing to cross the world? <laughs> um, well, I would say, so I studied abroad in college in Prague, in the Czech Republic, uh, for the spring semester of my junior year. And that completely opened up my world. Um, I think I traveled to, like, at least... 10 to 12 countries while I was living over there, at least. Um, 
And, you know, every weekend, we only had class Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So mm. Thursday night, my friends and I um, would get on a night train. We'd end up in a new country. And at that time, they didn't have the Euro. So um, different money exchange, uh, different language, different uh, metro system. So everything's new. And it was just amazing. You know, the culture, obviously, totally different. And that just changed my life. I mean, it made me... I think I'd always been adventurous, but before studying abroad, I'd only ever been to Mexico. Gotcha. You know, um, on a mission trip, on a couple mission trips. And so it just was a profoundly impactful experience for me and just made me realize how much I love um, meeting new people and going to new places and seeing things that I only ever heard about in books. I mean, I, I feel like my junior year of college... I learned more than I did the entire, my entire college experience. And I was barely in the classroom. You know, I had like three classes and they were a joke. <laughs> but I learned so much and I got to see all of these places. You know, I, I went to places like Auschwitz and that was like in the most intense experience I think I've ever had in my entire life. Um, but it was just oh man, it was incredible. And I vowed that I would take my children there someday. You know, I went to Anne Frank's, um, to the house where she was oh, hidden yeah. and got to see that. And I got to see the Mona Lisa and I got to, you know, just do all these different things. Um, and it's just so much, you know, I, it comes alive in such a powerful way, um, off of the page. You know, I mean, it's, you read about it in books. That's one thing you experience it firsthand. It's entirely another thing. So that, I would say, just gave me this wanderlust, um, this desire to just travel and see new things and go to new places. And so when I was, you know, I, my senior year of high school, I had had a really impactful experience with Net Ministries at the high school that I attended. Um, they had come and they came and did a retreat. And so I had told, I told myself that I wanted to do that for a year because it really was powerful for me to hear about Catholics having a personal relationship with Jesus because mm. I really felt like I didn't hear that very much. And so I felt like that was an important message to be, you know, sharing with high school kids. So I decided I wanted to do net. Well, when I was in college, I found out they had it in Australia and that was like done. That's where I'm going right after college. Because it, it just, uh, I guess it lit up all the, uh, the lights at the same time. Yeah, it, it hit exactly. the travel bug, it hit the adventure bug, and then it hit the uh, evangelical Catholic bug. Right. So it was just, gosh, this all is everything. All encompassing. All encompassing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you're in Australia, do you remember any really interesting story from Australia? Oh, well, um, I think... Probably the, the most fun story that, I mean, when I think about it, the, th the thing that jumps out in my mind, there's probably a couple different things, but when we were in, this was right before mid-year break. In the middle of the year, we got like a two-week break. And they're on obviously a different school. I don't know if your, your listeners will know this, but they do, um, do year-round schooling. And so January is the beginning of the new year for them. Okay. Um, and of course, they're... they're, they're uh, uh, what's the word? Their weather, their weather, their the uh, weather's turned around. Yes, their summer is winter. Yes, their exactly. winter is so, oh yeah, climate. Um. So anyway, we were. This is right before mid-year break. So I think it was probably you know June or so, 
And we were in Perth, which is in Western Australia. And they always say Western Australia, WA stands for wait a while. So over there, <laughs> everything is, it's slower. If you need to buy tires, it's going to take like a month to get them. I mean, it just was a very, it was a much more slow pace. So that was a unique experience for us. But we, they had, we would stay with host families anywhere that we went um, or we would, you know, we had all different kinds of accommodations that we experienced in our time there. And that was a blast too, because you'd meet all these different people and um, it was really fun. Sometimes we'd stay as a team. Sometimes we'd be, you know, broken up into different homes with like one or two teammates. Like I'd stay with one or two girls. So um, this particular month that we were working in Perth, they actually put us in a boarding house. So it was a board, it had been a boarding school. And it was no longer a boarding school. So they had this huge place with hundreds of rooms that were small. I mean, they were like really just dorm walls. Rooms. Yeah, dorm rooms. Dorm but rooms. not even, I mean, the walls didn't even go all the way to the ceiling. So you could, if you climbed really high, you could like peek your head over and scare somebody <laughs> or something. So everybody got their own, which we were like, this is amazing. Everybody has their own space to put their own stuff. You know, we weren't used to that. But we started playing, um, I think, if I remember correctly, they had never, okay, actually, I think they'd played sardines before. I introduced them to dodgeball. They had never played that before. So we had a blast playing that. Because this place had like a gym, it had a kitchen, it had all this stuff. But we would play sardines. You know, we'd do our retreats during the day, and then at night we'd have all this free time. So we'd make dinner, and then we'd play sardines for hours until um, like one o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and it was just such a blast because somebody would hide and it would take us forever to find them because this place was huge. But the best part was every weekend they kept, they would rent this place out to these other groups and they would fail to tell us until like an hour before we needed to be out. So they would like leave us a note saying, hey, there's a calisthenics group coming, a, a group of girls that do calisthenics are going to be staying here so you guys have to move out and you have to go live in the gym for the weekend <laughs> so we would like pack up all of our stuff right and at first we're like what but it ended up being some of my best memories because we would stay up until like three o'clock in the morning playing dodgeball um we would they had a sound system we would do karaoke we would i mean and it was just and there was a guy on my team tim malone was his his name and he was kind of the team comedian and he would basically recount every weekend you know he would say well first and he had he was a kiwi he was from new zealand so he would say well first we we started over here and then they made us go over here and i can't even do it but i mean we would all be like laughing so hard we were crying because he would just you know, recount what they had put us through, but it was a blast. So that's pretty awesome. Um, I guess kind of stepping back and looking at the big picture a little bit, I guess two, co two questions just kind of immediately come to mind. The first is how did you afford this? That's one. And then the second one is, um, were you thinking big picture in terms of career or what do I want to do with my twenties and, and just the rest of my life? So I guess those two questions. How did you okay. afford going to Australia? So I think, if I remember correctly, we had to raise like $2,500 or something like that um, for the year to help offset costs, which is really nothing. I mean, this, right. of course, is back This is back in 2003. 
So, so maybe, maybe dabble it to put it in yeah, modern dollars. Yeah. So let's just call it 5000 Yeah. So, I mean, I was definitely very blessed. I just sent out letters to friends and family and told them, hey, I'm going to be doing this, you know, mission work in Australia. We're going to be going into high schools and grade schools and sharing Jesus with these kids and running these retreats. And um, this is how much I need to raise. And so I was able to raise that. And I honestly don't remember. I'm sure my parents were incredibly generous and helped me with the plane ticket. I don't remember how that all, you know, played out. Um, while we were on team, there really weren't very many expenses at all because we were staying with host families. So it was like, you know, room and board was provided. And then we each got a stipend of $75 per month. Okay. Which, you know, I mean, at that time when your gas is paid for, your ins- everything is paid for, um, it left you enough to to be able to, you know, eat out a few times or, or buy a few clothes if you got sick of your clothes um, or, you know, what have you, send, to be able to buy stuff for family and such. And I know, you know, at that time I don't, I don't, uh, thankfully it wasn't out of control, but I think I had a credit card. <laughs> so um, I think I probably had, yeah, I remember when I came back, I think I had to pay off like maybe like $3,000, something like that. Okay. Because I did some traveling in the middle too for when we had the two-week break. I went up and <clears throat> did some traveling on my own while everybody else went home to see their families. Um, but as far as thinking ahead career-wise, the only thing I was thinking about, I've never really cared that much about money. Um, but I knew it's really always been more about a passion for doing whatever it is that I feel like God is calling me to do. And I felt very convicted that I was supposed to um, go back and teach theology at a Catholic high school. Um, You know, I think the culture has probably changed quite a bit since I was there. But when I was there, I felt like when I went to Catholic high school, um, I felt like there were so many missed opportunities in our our religion classes. I'm really helping us to fall in love with the Catholic Church. If anything, Hmm. um, I didn't want to be Catholic by the time I left Catholic high school. And so I really wanted to go back and, and be the difference maker for some of these kids. And so that's what I felt like the Lord was calling me to do. Um, And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I wasn't too worried about it. I knew that, you know, there was plenty of time for that. And I just kind of enjoyed my time in Australia and and didn't worry about what was coming next until that came. Did you know that you were going to go teach in a Catholic high school before you went to Australia or did that come to you in the middle of Australia? Um, I knew that I was feeling called to do that and so I purposely, even though I went to a public university, um, I did my student teaching at one of the local Catholic high schools here um, in English. So I was secondary education English, and then I was working on a, I worked on a catechetical certificate, getting a theology background um, when I got back. But um, so that was something that was always there. You always knew that, that you came, wanted actually, to. Actually, that came my senior year. Up until my senior year of high school, um, I I had wanted to be. I had wanted to go into social work. Okay. Because I've always had a passion for that too, um, but yeah, my senior year I changed my well. I had already declared social work, and then I changed it to secondary education, and I kept it that way for the rest of for all of college. Okay, so then, Nat, how did you know it was time to leave? Well, it's convenient because each year um, has a beginning and an end, so you can discern doing a second year, and I did discern that. Um, but I actually got kind of homesick. 
Okay. So, which I was surprised about, but I, I was, even though I loved Australia and I loved the people that I worked with, I really just felt like it was kind of time to come home. Okay. And so came. we did, we did go to New Zealand for a month right afterwards and traveled and camped out me and um, three other teammates. But after that, I came home in time for Christmas and and then I uh, just served at a restaurant for about six months and nannied part-time and started applying for jobs at local Catholic high schools. Okay. And then you got into the local Catholic high school. And what was that like? Oh, boy. <laughs> because this had been something that you'd been thinking about since, well, for years uh-huh. at that point. Yes. And, and so you came in and, and you wanted to correct mistakes that, that, uh, or missed opportunities mm-hmm. that previous instructors had had. Right. Um, so I ended up getting a job. At, I had wanted to go back and work at my alma mater, um, and I ended up getting a job. There were no openings at my the high school I had gone to, so I ended up getting a job at the rival high school, hmm. um, which was very different culturally, and it was actually really refreshing in a lot of ways. Um, it was much more diverse, and I really liked that. Um, but I would say, so first off... Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the most organized person as far as like preparing ahead of time. And I had three preps my first year, uh, and I was a traveling teacher, so I didn't have my own classroom. Oh my gosh. So I had all my stuff on a cart, and it was just really stressful. I mean, I feel like I, I would get up every morning. I'm not a morning person, but I'd be getting up at like 6, 6.30, probably earlier than that. Um, and then I wasn't going, I was working on stuff until like nine o'clock at night. You know, that was like the first month or two of school. And I just remember, you know, I was so excited about just sharing the Catholic faith with these kids. And I remember the night that we had back to school night and all the parents are sitting in the, the desks and I'm, you know, standing up here and passionately talking about all of this stuff. And I felt like I looked out in the audience and everybody was just looking at me like, you're crazy, or, or I don't care at all what you're saying. And maybe they weren't thinking that at all, but I just remember I like went to the library after it was all over, and I was completely exhausted, and I just started like bawling. Um, so, I mean, it was a challenge. And, and again, I think it's probably similar for this school that I taught at where, you know, I, I would assume that the culture has probably changed a lot. At that particular time, um, it was really tough to be there because I felt like, um, the things, the very things that I was teaching that were straight from the catechism, Catholic teaching, were literally being undone in other classrooms. Um, and that was super frustrating, you know, and I, and I also just, you know, I really loved these kids. It's drink. Teaching is draining. That's why I think you're amazing. And I think you have a (laughs) total gift for teaching because I can tell that it just brings you incredible energy. And I believe that you're really, really good at it too. Um, But I don't know. It just, for me, you know, the discipline was a pain. Um, And I think, yeah, it was just, it was just a little frustrating because I felt like I was kind of on the front lines and with not a whole lot of backup. There was definitely some backup, but not as much as I needed. And so, you know, after two years, I just really felt like I had prayed a lot about it and I just really felt like it was time to move on. Okay. Okay. Well, and I think that's good. I think it's good for people to just reassess where they're at in life and where they need to go and what they need to do. And, uh, you know, some people have certainly had a harder teacher teaching experience than what you've outlined, 
But on the other hand, you you rattled off about five things that are pretty tough to do on a first-year instructor. Mm -hmm. Um, Three preps, um, working until 9 p.m. at night, trying to get things clear with people. Uh, You're teaching kids one thing in first hour, and then it's getting undone, undermined in second hour. Uh, Administration not necessarily having your back. I I think many teachers can relate to some of these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't know the stats. I think I've heard that one out of four teachers leaves the field within four years. Mm -hmm. So there is a burnout rate with teachers. There genuinely is. And so... Uh, but I applaud you for for giving it your best shot and truly giving it your all the way you give everything your all. Um, so you knew that it was time to leave. What what would be next then? Because in a way, this was I don't know maybe the death of a dream and been something that you built toward for a long time. And so now what? Or um, or does the dream change? The dream changed. I mean, I remember uh, when I my the last day that I left. So I didn't have anything else lined up. I just put in my resignation. And I remember the last day that I walked out the door, I had the biggest smile on my face. <laughs> like, I am done. I am free. You know, it just wasn't it just wasn't the right fit for me, you know, and that's okay. And I, I really didn't know what the Lord had in store for me next, but I wasn't worried about it. Um, See, that's the thing. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. That just blows my mind because the standard, I teach personal finance. The standard advice is don't quit your job until you have a new job lined up. Yeah. Or have a big emergency fund because if your boss is psycho and you need to quit for your mental health, you're going to wish you had a big emergency fund. Yeah, and I had no emergency fund. You know, at that time, I really was not very financially savvy whatsoever. And in addition, I was making like $28,000 a year. So it was... You know, it was pretty low, and I, and I uh, had a car payment because I uh, made a poor decision about a new car right before I started my teaching job. But I was blessed. At this, so at this time, I think I was 24 years old, maybe 25. I, I think I was 25. Um, my uh, lease ran up with my roommates, and I decided, okay. I, I had had a couple interviews with a couple potential jobs that I was excited about, working in ministry in different capacities, um, but none of them had come through yet, and so I decided, okay, I need to move back in with the parentals until I figure out what I'm going to be doing. So that's what I did, and then I think it was probably about two weeks after I moved back in with my parents, I, I got my next job. What was the next job? Next job was working for um, the Catholic Diocese of Kansas City, Missouri, St. Joseph, and I uh, got the position to Director of Young Adult and Campus Ministry. Okay, okay. And this, correct me if I'm wrong, when you inherited that organization, uh, people maybe met, I don't know, once a month or once every two months. I, I just remember an event where people would meet in a bar uh, just roughly about every 60 days, maybe about 25, 30 people would show up. If there was more to it than that, I'm just mm-hmm. not quite sure what it was. Um, so they did have something, and that actually wasn't started by the director of the young adult office. It was for young adults, but that was actually started by um, Keith Harone in the vocations office. Oh. So that was a that was a whole separate thing. It was okay. Yeah, so what? Was what? Third Thursdays. So it was once a month, the third Thursday of the month. What um, did you inherit? So I would say basically when I came into the office, um, my my predecessor had scheduled three theology on taps. So I think it was one each month, and the first one that I went to, I think there were eight people. 
that what, what's a theology on tap for people who don't know? Yes. So that would be where you basically bring a speaker into a bar, people hang out, eat food, get beer or whatever, and listen to a talk. And then they just hang out afterwards. And nationwide, some of these things are insanely popular. And people might have 100, 200 people oh, yeah. show up for one of these things. And mm-hmm. the speaker could just be somebody mm-hmm. who lights the room on fire. Right. And then afterward, people have wonderful conversations and they make new friends. And it's great. Mm-hmm. And so, on the other hand, these had eight. <laughs> Why right. did they have eight? I don't know. I don't know. Um... The speakers were duds. Yes. The events were not advertised. Um, not really. Well, there wasn't really a base from which to advertise them so much. I mean, they. I guess you have to start somewhere, but no. I mean, I think, you know, my predecessor, I mean, he had a really great heart, but I don't know that I really saw that he was really, truly passionate about young adult ministry. Right. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a criticism. Maybe I have a really great heart, but I don't fly airplanes. They would crash. Right, right. So just not everybody can do every kind of job, potentially. So, well, what did you do with the organization over time? Well, um, I mean, it, it, it grew fairly quickly. I would say it was a little bit of a slow, slow startup. Um, the first... Oh, gosh, I would say three to six months. You know, we just had a couple things going. And we were gaining slow momentum. But then um, a priest in the vocation office had the idea to start something that we later called Tuesdays at the Boulevard, which was that um, we would have a a monthly young adult mass. And uh, it was the third Tuesday of the month. And uh, afterwards... We would walk next door to Boulevard Brewery and have pizza and beer and live music and people would stay, you know, it would start, mass would start at 6.30, go till about 7.30 and then people would walk over and they'd stay till 10.30. And it <clears throat> grew quickly to the point where, you know, we'd have 225 people. I mean, you essentially maxed out the building space. We did, yeah. I mean, they had a capacity, I think fire code capacity of 225 and mm-hmm. oftentimes there was 225. Yeah. So there was that, that happened, and then what else did you add after that? <clears throat> um, man, we added in Band of Brothers and Sisterhood, small groups for men and women, um, and then of course the Sports League, Catholic Challenge Sports, which we had six sports throughout the year, um, sports leagues. Right, these would have seasons of maybe eight games. <clears throat> oh yeah. So mm-hmm. six, six uh, sports Eight games each, 48 games, mm-hmm. plus some one-off events. at the Tournaments. end of each, yep. And then and we had... That was a lot of people in Catholic oh, yeah. Challenge Sports. It was, and it was... Hundreds. So fun. So great. <laughs> um, great, you know, just like flag football and kickball and softball and sand volleyball and... Um, did I say dodgeball? Yeah, okay. you did now. Yeah, okay. Um, and it just exploded. I mean, yeah. just hundreds of people. And it just it seemed like it grew and grew and grew every year. Mm-hmm. And it really drew in just a lot of people that maybe wouldn't have come to necessarily like a, a band of brothers or a sisterhood group. Um, but then, you know, they would meet people. And there were just great people that were involved in this group. And they were hospitable and warm and welcoming and um, did a great job of 
just building relationships with people and drawing them into other parts of the ministry, which was when it was really, it was really fun to see that. And then we had, you know, things like the Hee Haw Hoedown, which I loved every fall. You know, we'd have a hoedown. It was great. Um, we would have a New Year's Eve party, not necessarily every year, but it was always a total blast. Um, those were super elegant. Yeah. So those were fun. And then, I mean, just, you know, things like doing stuff for, for Holy Week leading up to Easter, um, watching the Passion of the Christ on Good Friday out on the front lawn in the Meyer Catholic Quarter, which was, you know, this neighborhood that essentially built up to, to be 35 young adults that were living in men's and women's households. You and, built a neighborhood. I mean, this was not a thing before you. There was no Meyer Catholic Quarter on Meyer Street. This was something that you built. How did you build a neighborhood? I just feel like it was the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, we we had the the one house of six girls, and we loved it so much. So, you know, the two-story duplex, two different duplexes, but a shared house with an internal back stairwell. And we just were telling people how much we loved it. You know, it was like being in college, but you don't, have to study and you get, you go to work and then you come home, you get, you get paid and then you get to just hang out in the evenings. So it was just to this amazing community. And so we, you know, told some other friends about it and noticed that a house came up across the street. Well, these two girls bit, bit on it. You know I mean? They, they moved in and then it, and then the, then it was born. It was like, all right, this is becoming a reality. And so I just, we just started advertising it as the Meyer Catholic quarter. If you want to live in community, you know, go to this page and you'll find. So we started listing anytime a house would come available. And of course, this whole street was perfect for this because it was almost entirely rentals and they were reasonably priced. And it was in such a fun area of town in Brookside. And so it just started taking off. And the nuts and bolts of it, in part, were just really simple. Just copy down the number that you see in the window, this place for rent, post it on Facebook in the Meyer Catholic Quarter page, and then people could see that, and then people could move in. It was just so simple. Mm -hmm. And, hey, move to this neighborhood because there's 30 other people in your age bracket who share your values, who all want to do this thing. I mean, the nuts and bolts of it were just very, very, very simple. Mm -hmm. So, But the inspiration was really cool. Let me just ask, where do you think you get your ideas, your creative ideas? Oh, man, all different kinds of... I mean, I can't take credit for so many of the things that that became a reality through City on a Hill. Um, I mean, I, I feel like just a lot of people, you know, they pitch an idea and sometimes I would latch on and sometimes I'd say, I don't think that's going to work, you know, and, and just had to be a little bit brutal. I think about that. <laughs> about rejecting or, ideas yeah, from I mean, time saying, to time. I don't, I don't think that's going to fly or that doesn't quite fit into the, you know, but it's a great idea. Um, maybe sometime down the road, you know, I don't know, depending on what the idea would be. But I also just felt like I truly believed, and I've always said this, that I felt like um, the Holy Spirit just really wanted this group. Like there was such mm. a hunger, such a need for this group before it existed. You know, we had a, a weekly Thursday mass, but there was nobody that was a full-time staff member running this stuff. And so, you know, that was great, but it was it was pretty um, un- informal. And this sort of formalized it and gave it a structure, and then it just flourished because there was such a desire for that type of community. I remember prior to that, you know, there'd be plenty of Friday or Saturday nights that I would just, like, veg at home. 
And by the time I was done running City on a Hill, I mean, for me, it was like a luxury to stay home on a Friday or Saturday <laughs> night because there was so much going on. And by luxury, I mean just that like sometimes you need that to recharge, but there were so many great things going all the time, organic, um, you know, community happening and then things that were structured community happening. And it was just... Unbelievable. And just to see um, people's lives transformed through the ministry was incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, so many people met and got married. And now five years later, 10 years later, have families, have two, three children, four children. Uh, just lifelong friendships were formed. People made professional connections with each other. People got raises and promotions. Uh, just all kinds of exciting things came out of it in a tangible way and then the the faith component i mean i think a lot of people's faith life really shot up just really grew mm -hmm. tremendously uh in terms of like getting your ideas i want to also ask so you were okay with other people bringing you ideas oh yeah i mean so uh catholic challenge sports that was not my idea at all i mean matt mays uh, i attribute that to him you obviously know him um, but yeah, he, he's a great guy. He is a great guy, and he's very passionate. And he had come come up from Atlanta and had you know been really involved in the Catholic young adult scene there, and had had seen Atlantic Catholic sports, I think is what they called it, um, just be a huge catalyst for community. Um, and he was so adamant about it, you know. I mean, just he he just kept pushing, and I, I mean, I know he talked to me about it a few times, and I I was really open to the idea, but I felt overwhelmed about the prospect. Mm. But he just kept talking to several people, you know, and um, eventually, I don't even remember exactly, <clears throat> I think our first meeting, he just launched it. And he was working in the vocation office, so it was a perfect, there was a perfect complementarity there of working together um, on joint joint things to, to basically just bring out young professionals um, who had a desire to grow in their faith or uh, were searching or, you know, whatever. I mean, people came from a lot of different backgrounds, but um, there was definitely a complementarity there. So, I mean, just to answer your question, I would say, yeah, there were many times, <clears throat> you know, Greg Doring, I attribute him with the name, coming up with the name City on a Hill, which I think is such a great name. I didn't come up with that. Um, we had a... a a session where we all just threw out names and, and he's, you know, brought that name to the group. And it was like, that is, that is a that great is name. Beautiful. That is it. Yes. That is beautiful. And he was also pushing me to do a new year's party, new year's Eve party. You know, he said, you have all these people that want to get dressed up and do something fun, but they don't want to go to these other events where everybody's maybe just going to be, you know, getting drunk and there's a bunch of random people. Why not make a really nice event where we can all hang out together and it's reasonably priced and it's, um, well done, well packaged. And I think the goal was always to compete with the secular realm, you know, be able to come up with something that is packaged in a way that it's just as good as these other events, but it's actually even better because you have authentic, virtuous friendships being built and people having conversations that are giving them the desire to want to go grow deeper in their Catholic faith. Right. Now, I, and just to kind of talk about marketing for a little bit, I was going to ask, how do you get the word out? But but I think you also mentioned something else that I really want to latch on to. This is maybe putting it in very crude terms, but people 
maybe need to think about who their customer is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you just sort of mentioned a few things about the type of person that you are putting on events for, which would be the type of person you're trying to attract. Who is that type of person? Well, I always saw the need to, um, I think this is where Catholic groups get it wrong a lot, is that they market it to the choir members. And the choir members are already going to come. Right. I mean, and by choir members, obviously, I mean the people that are already serious about their faith and are going to mass every Sunday. Um, they're going to come regardless because they want to be with these other people that are desiring to grow in their faith. Um, but I always felt like I would try to market it, first of all, um, in a more masculine way, because the women were going to come no matter what. So you don't want to turn the guys off with... Um, Nothing but Jane Austen festivals. Exactly, you know, or just, I don't know, pictures of, you know, the the promotional materials that are just not, there's too much, there's too much feminine programming in the Catholic Church, I feel like. Um, So that's a big thing, and um, and then also, you want to, you want to, you want to grab the people that are um, nominal Catholics, fallen away Catholics. And you're not going to grab them by, you know, hosting a Bible study in the basement of the church. I'm sorry, but uh, one out of a hundred might come in that target audience, but I want like 50 of them to come. Right. So. So how do you do that? How do you snag 50? You said like, uh, make it a little bit more masculine. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you aim for these nominal Catholics? But, but I also kind of want to say that at the same time, you were kind of like no compromise. Uh, I mean, you were still 100% Catholic mm-hmm. about the way that you went about doing things. Uh, I mean, if you were a restaurant, you'd be the restaurant that says, hey, we are serving all paleo menu. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are going to attract everybody, mm-hmm. but we're just not going to compromise off of our paleo lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you so- just didn't compromise off of the Catholic uh, philosophy mm-hmm. uh, in practice, but somehow you managed to attract, uh, I guess, the fallen away or the nominal. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Well, I think um, I definitely attribute a lot of that to the sports league, um, to Catholic Challenge Sports being like a huge avenue for people to come in, especially guys, for the first time. And then really it just you know would happen where they would start to get to know these people on their teams and, and realize, hey, these people are excited about their faith, but they're actually pretty cool. They're not weird, you know? I mean, because I think there's definitely that stereotype, right? So I think that's huge, you know, just having things like that. Um, so the sports league, uh, and then to use language, I, I got this term from, I think, Curtis Martin from... Uh, Oh my gosh. Focus. Focus. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fellowship of Catholic University students. Um, I have mom brain moments every once in a while, but anyway, um, so creating win events. So events that are going to draw people in. So, you know, a thing like a hoedown or New Year's Eve party, there's not specifically a religious component to that, but there are going to be a lot of people there at that event that are sold out for their Catholic faith and are in love with their faith. And so they're going to be meeting some of these other people that are just coming to this fun event that, Hey, it's 30 bucks. You know, there's food, uh, whatever drink tickets, you know, three or three or four drink tickets, 
um, live music, a poker tournament, all this different stuff. And um, I don't know, it's, you know, just those. So at that event, they're going to see promotional materials for all these other things, including other win events. So if they're not ready yet to dive into uh, Band of Brothers or Sisterhood, hey, we've got dodgeball starting up in two weeks, and tomorrow's the last day to register. So they're at this New Year's Eve party, and they see this promotional material. I mean, who doesn't want to play dodgeball? I mean, I'm sure there are people, but I think they're few and far between, right? Right, <laughs> so right, right, right. It's like, that's like a, an adult's a dream come true. Like, I can still play dodgeball? Are you serious? You know, so just, I think that is strategically how how it was done. If that... Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the event is attractive on multiple levels. Uh, and so then the promotional materials are there to hook them for the next event. Right. And you know how it is. You go out to a fun event, you have a very good time, and then unfortunately it comes to an end, and then you're thinking, oh, no, I have to go home. But at least there's this flyer here for this great sports league. Mm-hmm. So you get a little something that's good. Yeah, you know, and we that did you take with you. We had a leadership team, and and this didn't. I didn't. I wasn't able to develop this as much as I wanted to before I left the office. But you know, we had like a hospitality team. So the idea is that there's people at every event where they're kind of able to recognize who the new people are. You know, get them signed up. At that time, we really utilized uh, a weekly email, or I guess it was a monthly email with a few reminders throughout the month about different events and then we utilized Facebook we didn't really have that was one of my great um uh failures was I never I was so busy all the time creating all these events I never got around to actually doing the website I kind of used Facebook as a crutch but the ministry does have a website now so that's great um but just you know getting these people plugged in basically recognizing they're new you know getting taking the opportunity to really get to know them and ask them just genuinely being interested in in learning about them. And I think that authentic conversation is so rare in our society. Mm. And I think we just stay on the superficial level with people. And so I think that there was something that was really powerful that, that a lot of people experienced when they would come in that they actually felt like somebody was desiring to know their person. Yeah, people really kind of got the feeling that People here want to engage with me. And that was really kind of the plan for the hospitality team. Right. And the follow-up. Well, because it got to be so big. I mean, you could do that personally when there were 30 people in the organization. But, you know, once you reach a certain size, if you're going to have people feel that personal connection, Mm -hmm. uh, it just simply had to be more people. It just had to be a hospitality team. Right. So by the time you had been there for, I think, five years, it had grown to at least Mm -hmm. 700 people. And you had events all over the place. Um, one other little topic related to all this that I, I didn't ask about yet is how did you keep track of all of this? Ah, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I mean, since I built it from the ground up, it I was able to. Um, at the beginning, it wasn't like drinking from a water hose or what are they from a drinking from from a fire hose from a fire hose yeah (laughs) i'm like a water hose i could probably do that um yeah i mean it was manageable in the beginning i would say for the first year and a half to two years 
And I definitely had a system. I mean, I, I had to, you know, have certain days of the week that we did certain things so I could keep track of it all. And, and you know, every summer things would kind of slow down. We'd stop the normal programming, do a couple other things. I know, you know, you led a Bible study one summer. Um, you led at least two Financial Peace University groups. I don't remember if one of those was in the summer or not, but... Um, you know, we kind of just changed things up and that was sort of a time to recharge. But yeah, I mean, I would say towards the end, it did get, that's where the, the leadership team was so important in building that up and making it strategic. I mean, just because it was getting to the point where I, as the only full-time staff person, was having a little bit of a difficult time staying on top of everything. I really want to compliment you just on overcoming a lot of hurdles that I think really paralyzed a lot of other people. Whenever you read about a business growing, you often hear that getting that first hire is crippling for some businesses. They try to hire somebody, it just doesn't work out, and then it just winds up getting stuck at one employee. Or you hear about other situations where they have 100 customers, and then just for whatever reason, they can't get past 100 customers. Or they just have problems with their advertising. It, you overcame all of these problems. I mean, the organization just kept growing and growing. And whenever you felt like, oh, hmm, maybe I need some help, then there's a leadership team. When you felt like, oh, maybe we're too big, we're losing our, our common touch, then there's a hospitality team. There's a sports league. There's men's groups. There's women's groups. There were just so many different activities. You just overcame a lot of pitfalls that a lot of businesses would stumble into. And I think a lot of ministries would stumble into and just those just stumbling blocks. You just mm -hmm. seem like you figure out a way to, to get over all those. Was, was that just, Hey, I see a problem. I solve it. Or what was, did you have a method to your, your plan or did it just evolve? Um, I mean, I, I would say there was definitely a, a method to it. I don't know that I could articulate what that was. Um, and I think, the method wasn't looking too far in advance. You know, it wasn't like a 10-year plan or anything like that. Gotcha. I mean, I definitely had a desire for City on a Hill to become a household name within a certain amount of time. Like, I really wanted everybody in Kansas City to at least know that it existed so that they could have the opportunity to get involved. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard. It's difficult to answer that question because I just feel like there were so many different components um, that required different methods. Maybe you just to be used. solve things as they came up. Yeah, I think so. And you know, there would be times where we would try something, and if it didn't really stick, then you cut it. See, that's another great entrepreneurial thing that you would do. Um, they just say sometimes, Chris Gilbo, who does Side Hustle School, will say things like, if at first you don't succeed, try something else. Mm -hmm. And that's what you would do. You would roll out an event, and if it didn't quite work, well, then you would try something else. And if it stuck, well, then you just kept rolling with it. Mm -hmm. And that was just a great thing. And just something else I want to compliment you on with uh, what you did was, you certainly identified people who could do various jobs. I remember one mutual friend bars was an accountant and could just really keep track of things. And then he became the person in charge of Tuesdays at the Boulevard mm -hmm. because that had so many moving pieces and right. it had spreadsheets and it had numbers and it had stuff that you didn't necessarily enjoy. And, you know, you just 
gave it to the person who loves that kind of thing, mm-hmm. thrives with that kind of thing, and just consistently, time and time again, it seemed like you found the right person for the job. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to give you some props for that. Thank you. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like the Lord would put the right, <clears throat> right people in my path. And I think that's one of the, you know, I'm, I'm still to this day the most passionate about young adult ministry of any, any kind of ministry. Um, even though I'm kind of a little bit removed from it at this point and just in the state of life that I'm in, it's, I'm not able to be involved anymore. And, Oh, probably for the first three years of motherhood, that was really sad for me. I mean, I still mm. try to kind of hang on to it a little bit, but um, I'm kind of over that now. But I still, you know, I light up when I talk about young adult ministry because I think it's such a crucial, crucial thing to invest in in the church. And, I mean, you're catching these people when they are just... <clears throat> many of them, you know, just coming out of college, they, they haven't made these life altering decisions. They still have their whole career in front of them so they could change trajectory if they wanted to. Um, you know, obviously their vocation is still unwritten. I mean, they haven't made that final decision, many of them, or they're, you know, just trying to figure out what does God want me to do with my life? Um, and so I just think it's such a cool time because you're, you're, able to catch these people before making all these big decisions. But, um, I think, yeah, I totally just lost my train of thought. What was the question? <laughs> well, ac- actually I want to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's great. It's classic. Um, how about this? Let me just ask. So you got married, and now you have five kids. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about your stage of life now, and then let's get back to young adult. Okay. Could you see yourself at a certain point? The last kid is 10 or 15 or 35. And uh, now we get back to young adult ministry. I, I guess first talk about marriage and kids a little bit, if mm-hmm. you would. Um, whew, marriage and kids, it's crazy. It is, it is, there's no way to really prepare for it. You know, I mean, you think you're prepared, but it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, it's just, um, specifically, you know, motherhood of mothering small children and I stay home with them and I've got, um, I've got two that are in school full time and then I've got three under the age of four. Oh my goodness. Um, all boys and they are a handful. So it's crazy. And it's, it, it really stretches you to your limits. Unlike I had ever experienced before coming a mother. Now you're, you are an adventuresome person. Are you trying to raise your kids to also be adventuresome? Um, so I think it all has happened so fast that I'm just now. So my youngest just turned one. Okay. And I feel like I'm just, I feel like I kind of lost a sense of myself for those years there because I was basically pregnant or with a new baby for five years. Right. The last five years, essentially. Um, Because I also had two miscarriages in there, so that's five pregnancies. Mm. And um, it's a lot, you know, and you just, you kind of come out of the haze of it and I, you know, have lost my balance of just prayer and I don't think I ever necessarily was like a super healthy eater. I think I tried, but I've learned a lot about eating healthy in the last three or four years, um, doing a lot of research and just trying different things. 
to feel like I can get, you know, health to be a healthier me and exercise all those things. So, um, it's a huge challenge though, I would say. Okay. For sure. So yes, it's so as far as the adventure piece. Yeah. um, Yeah. Where where are we going to take the kids? Yeah. So I think we're kind of just now it's just been survival mode, honestly. Um, and so I think I'm starting to, you know, we're going to Colorado this summer for a trip and, so that'll be good to take them on some hikes and do some things. Um, and we're starting to, I don't know, we're starting to get out more. I think some people do that better than others. Um, but my husband and I do have a dream that we talk about quite often. Um, when our oldest, who will turn 11 at the end of July, um, we actually, when she graduates high school, we would like to take our kids on a trip around the world for a year. And so we... Um, are working towards this. So we kind of have talked about doing it where we'll do like, you know, five months and then come home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and recharge and then go back out for the, for the next five or six months. Okay. So that's the type of thing growing up where I don't think I even ever would have thought of that or considered that. I've read about that since then. I just think it's the coolest thing. So how do you handle school? Uh, we were just homeschool. And really, it would be very loose homeschooling because, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, you know, I mean, the best school is just experiential learning. So, would you worry about them being academically behind when they got back? I don't worry about that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would all work itself out. You know, even if they ended up having to repeat a year, it would be totally worth it. I think that that year would um, deeply impact their the rest of their life. Are they readers? Yes. Okay. Our two oldest who are reading are both voracious readers, which is really cool. If you went around the world, uh, just name a few places that you'd like to go. Oh, well, <clears throat> I mean, I definitely want to take them to Europe. Um, I would love to take them to Australia. I have always had a, a dream to go to India and have not yet been there. Um We've talked about it a little bit. You know, my well, my two oldest kids are uh, half Taiwanese. And so we would like to take them to Asia. Um, you know, go see the Great Wall of China. Visit some family in, in Taiwan. Um, visit China. Uh, Israel. See, knowing you, I just have this uh, vision of going to places and jumping off of waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that. Hiking I've, I've cliff jumped, but not off of a waterfall. Okay. That sounds exciting. Okay. I just picture you just being out in the wilds and all kinds of places. Uh, what about museums and things like that? I love museums. My husband... Um, does not love them as much as I do. He loves he loves art museums. Okay. I'm not really I don't really have a deep appreciation for art. I've grown in my appreciation of it when I I mean for it when I've we've gone to the Nelson and Hills, you know, he's he's a melancholic, a choleric melancholic, so he will you know have these deep deep thoughts about this particular uh piece of art and so I I'm learning new things about art that I never really have known before. But um, I love, so when we, shortly after we got married, we actually went to New York City for a wedding of a friend of his, and I was so excited to go to the 9-11 museum, Mm, and I think he thought we were going to spend like, maybe like a couple hours there. I literally 
read every single what do you call it? A play card? Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. whatever it is that, you know, the description for every single photo that they had and every single artifact. I mean, I just took it all in and I think he wanted to pull his hair out because <laughs> he was like, oh my gosh, I think we get the gist of it. We all remember, right? So anyway, I mean, I think we'll have to do, well, it will be a balance and hopefully we'll get to take that trip. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to fall into place, but we're both pretty gung-ho about it. So That's awesome. I'm hoping well, it happens. I, I have to say I'm like you with the museums, because I'll do that. Mm -hmm. I went to D.C. for three, four days and 18, mm -hmm. just so that I could do nothing but go to museums. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I was just reading seven hours a day. The museums mm -hmm. would be open from about 10 until 5, and... You know, I, I think I read 80% of what was available to read in the Holocaust Museum, yeah, for yep, example. Yep, um, been to that so one. I just, I, I can't get enough of that kind of mm -hmm. thing. I went to Alaska and I went to about nine different towns and I pieced together a history of Alaska just from going to 11 museums in nine towns. Mm -hmm. So, wow. yeah, yeah, museums are just a ton of fun. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'd like you to give um, a little bit more on the young adult idea. Is this just something that's lingering in the back of your mind that maybe 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you go back and you make an impact? I have no idea. Okay. You know, I mean, I, 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 I know that the passion is still there. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like in 20 years, or if I feel like I will still be irrelevant. Um, you know, I might be a little too far removed at that point. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Okay. Okay. Yeah, these ideas just maybe have to germinate. Mm -hmm. Or maybe a different idea takes over instead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I guess two last questions. Uh, a bit of advice. If somebody came to you and, I don't know, she was 16 <laughs> or she was 21 or she was 26, and she said, I, I just feel like I'm too cautious of a person. How do I become more adventurous? What would you say to this girl? Or guy. Well, um, oh goodness, that's a good question. You you ask great questions. Um, I think I would have to dig deeper. I would need to find out what are the things that she's passionate about because I wouldn't want to give her a formulaic answer like you need to study abroad for a semester when you're a junior in college and then everything else will fall into place because you know that may or may not be the case for her. And so I would say I would want to ask her a lot more questions about, first of all, why she has a desire to be more adventurous. Was that the word that you used? Yeah, yeah. yeah. more um, adventurous. And because I think every human wishes that he or she had more courage. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that's the thing that every single person wishes that they had more of. Mm -hmm. That's probably true. I've never thought about that, but that's probably true. Um, so I think I would just dig deeper to find out what are the things that she's passionate about because I think you have to do something within your realm of interest. And if you're doing something that's just so completely out of your interest or, I mean, you can still be adventurous within a certain comfort zone and then you, you go to the end of that comfort zone and then you push yourself a little further. Okay. But within the realm of what you're already interested in doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're passionate yeah. About? Stick to your interests. Mm-hmm. Maybe think of something that you're slightly afraid of that's mm -hmm. in your interests and just etch your way, just move your way out of your comfort zone. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. If you think you could swim in eight feet of water, then try to swim in nine feet of water. Mm -hmm. Try to swim in 10 feet of water. 
That's a little bit of what I'm hearing. Yes. Uh, okay, maybe a related question. Maybe this might make it easier. Suppose she says, I'd really like to travel, but I just don't think I can afford it. What would you say? Oh, I would ask her where she wants to go. And then I would um, encourage her to come up with a plan to make it happen because I think you can make it happen if you want to make it happen. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities out there. Like, perfect example would be net. You know, it's like it's like traveling with a with a safety net. I mean, essentially, you know, you're raising a small amount of money and then you're there and and you're taken care of for ten and a half, eleven months um, with a place to stay and food. You're meeting people from tons of different countries and really immersed, being immersed in the culture. At, at, at a very small expense to yourself. I mean, it, you know, it, it really, I didn't spend a lot of money when I was doing no, that. And I no. got to live in Australia for a year. And you got paid for it. Exactly. So there's opportunities like that. Obviously, there's, you know, teaching English in other countries, and I don't know as much about that, but I know that there are many opportunities to do that. And Europe um, was relatively cheap for you, too. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. Yeah. So, yeah. so you did Europe on the cheap and you yep. did Australia on the cheap. Yeah. I mean, I used to, uh, I think I, my goal was to spend $30 a day. At, at the end of my semester, I traveled for five weeks in Europe. And my goal was to spend $30 a day and that included accommodations and food. Okay. And then each country that I went to, I would eat at one nice restaurant and have like a glass of wine. You know, I remember in, in, Belgium, I had steamed mussels um, with French fries and a Hogarten. I'm amazed you remember that. <laughs> Hogarten beer, you know, and so that was my one meal. And, and other than that, I ate, you know, like I had a jar of peanut butter and I would just get bread and have like peanut butter and jelly or eat an apple or, you know, go to the go to the market in the town square and buy a wedge of cheese. I mean, you know, you just do those things and then find the cheapest hostel you could stay in that was reputable. So so it can be done. It can be done. It and I met many people along the way that would run out of money and they would just stop and work in the hostel that they were staying in and they would get a free place to stay and they got, you know, a low hourly wage, but they would just basically work there for a month or two until mm. they built up enough funds to go to their next destination. I just think that's very, very helpful and just very good. I think a lot of times people think things are not very possible. One time with my students, I had them come up with an assignment where they would travel around the world and figure out how much things would cost. And I was just shocked that a bunch of them were coming back with, I can circumnavigate the globe and I can make 20 stops and I can go to all of these exciting places Final bill, $3,500. And I thought, that is it? That is dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. And you could have this incredible experience, which I don't know, maybe more people do it than I think, but it just doesn't seem to me, you just don't hear all the time about people circumnavigating the globe and going to 20 exciting places. Until you go to those places and then you meet a ton of people. And it was mainly Australians (laughs) and... Probably some, if I remember, yeah, some British. And, I mean, there were certainly a few Europeans, too, but a lot of Australians. I met a lot of Australians that were doing that, just taking a trip around the world, doing the the seven stops in one year. And you have to keep moving forward, and I think you can only... I don't remember all the rules of the ticket, but 
Yeah, there's definitely those those opportunities out there. And once you go into that environment, you meet a lot of people that are doing it. That's very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Your own little subgroup, I guess, so to speak. Yeah. Okay, my last question is this. Let's just fast forward to age 100. <clears throat> You're okay. sitting on the front porch of your house. Your husband is holding your hand. You're surrounded by children and grandchildren, maybe grandchildren, and you're just looking back on an awesome life. And somebody says, Grandma, tell us what was good about your life. What do you say? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Um, I mean, I think it just comes down to my Catholic faith sustaining me and my friends and family just spurring me on, helping me to grow, pushing me to better myself. Um, And just learning to, yeah, learning. I think you just learn so much through, I think you learn a lot more through the downs in life than you do through the ups. You know, I mean, I think the times that I've grown the most in my life are, are the times that have been the hardest and so I think I would, I would hope that I would say I was really grateful for those because I think those, those experiences are what really shape you and make, make you into who you become. And I think God uses those things to, yeah, to break you and to remold you and to, to be more, um, to resemble more the person that he wants you to be. And so to, to, to be grateful for those times, even when they're really difficult, because when you look back, it is really amazing just to see how God uses all of that for your good. That sounds like a follow-up episode that we should do <laughs> at some point. Carrie, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, Tim. This is really fun. Awesome. Have a good night. You too. I don't know why I said that part. <laughs> Sorry. I'll probably leave that You're in. right here. <laughs> I'm sure I'll leave that in. That was such a great conclusion. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. A mini episode will be coming up in two days, and we'll be back with a longer episode next week. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to check out my novel, Tom Buchanan, Misunderstood, which is on Amazon. It's a different spin on The Great Gatsby. Thanks again.